I'm Tom Vanderick, and you're listening to the Getting Smart podcast. We're about 15 months into a new age of human-computer interaction, and ed leaders around the world are thinking hard about what it means, uh, how to change their learning goals, how to improve their learning experiences. Uh, and uh, we're, we're lucky to be talking to Charles Fidel, uh, the founder of the Center for Curriculum Redesign, about uh, what it all what it all means. I think of Charles in the center as the leading authority on on elementary and secondary education outcomes, and I love their new book called Education for the Age of AI. Charles, it's great to see you again, and thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure, Tom. Thank you. Why do you write this book? Well, you know, I've been paying attention to uh, AI since last century. <laughs> quite honestly. And uh, with ChatGPT, I think we all realize that it's finally here to a reasonable extent. And I will explain why reasonable in a moment. But now it's something that we can actually act with in education circles. Uh, Past attempts at bringing this to the fore back in, let's say, the 2016-2018 timeframe fell on deaf ears and got uh, smothered away by COVID. But ChatGPT has finally put it in front of everyone. So we thought it was time to um, to write about its implications for teaching and learning. Charles, uh, this is just a great book. It's certainly one of the earliest. It's definitely the best examination of what AI means for education and particularly for education outcomes, how we express them and how we assess them and how AI will influence them. I want to jump into chapter four, where you summarize the high-level impact on education. How, how would you describe the high-level impact on education? Thank you, Tom. Well, first, um, to understand what's needed in education, one has to accept the reality of what AI can and cannot do. There has been an enormous amount of hype about uh, general intelligence AI being able to mimic the entire human capabilities, or super intelligence AI being far greater than humans, far better than humans. But the reality is that this is completely overhyped. We are in an interesting phase, which we, a number of us call capable AI. This capable AI phase does not mean that the jobs will disappear. They will morph into needing that tool, of course, the same way that the spreadsheet has forced an accountant, a bookkeeper, to start using spreadsheets, not pen and paper. So this is a new tool, very powerful. It impacts language-related activities, but not necessarily other types of activities. And that means that, by and large, jobs will still be here. They will be a bit different. And as usual, we are terrible at imagining the new jobs that emerge when new technologies show up. For example, would anyone have thought of influencer as being a job? And yet, here we are. It is. So uh, I wanted to say this because we have to be really careful because high high school really is a preparation for jobs in addition to continuing middle school and elementary school's preparation for life. So... We are not in the position to say high school can should not have any outcome related to jobs, only outcomes related to lives. 
It has to be both. Okay, with that preamble, that means now that high school has to be redesigned to pay more attention to different types of knowledge that are needed. So pay more attention to procedural knowledge and uh, conceptual knowledge, not just facts and figures, meaning declarative knowledge, because, well, the internet and all the more AI can do really well at declarative knowledge. Now, again, we have to be careful here. It's not all of it. It's being much more choosy about what type of knowledge and what knowledge itself is meaningful. So we have to pay attention to redesigning the curricula with that in mind. Number one, curate knowledge, traditional disciplines in particular. Why so much trigonometry and so little data science? Second, in this modernization of knowledge, why wouldn't we teach technology and engineering? We call it STEM, but we really only teach math and science. We don't teach civil, mechanical, electrical engineering. If you're lucky, your school will be offering computer science. No biotech, typically. It's, it's I mean, biotech, not just basic biology or microbiology, etc. So we don't really teach technology and engineering. Why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we be teaching entrepreneurship rather than traditional business? Entrepreneurship is the job of the future. Why wouldn't we be teaching social sciences to everyone? If understanding yourself and others matters so much in this age, why wouldn't we be teaching psychology, sociology, and anthropology in high school as a mandatory topic? Well, we can't because the traditional disciplines have taken up all the time, and that's what we mean by we have to curate knowledge and leave room for the modern uh, disciplines and modernized um, subjects and topics of existing disciplines. That's number one. Long answer, that's where we are. Second, we have to finally get to the point where we teach the competencies we've been talking about for decades. You know, my first book was called 21st Century Skills. It became the moniker used worldwide. But I'm still, you know, frustrated by the fact that no jurisdiction, not even the Singapore's and Finland's of the world, have truly embedded the teaching of critical thinking and creativity and, and curiosity and so on within their curricula. It's only added as, a, as an add-on on top of everything else, rather than being part and parcel of how the education happens. So we need to teach skills and character and meta-learning in an embedded way in the disciplines. So these things are the, the new requirements, you know, curating knowledge, making sure the competencies are taught, and finally, we have also identified what we call drivers. Drivers relate to the motivation of the student, to the personalization aspect. They relate to identity, agency, and purpose. And that's what we need to pay a lot more attention to because, again, if it can be found on the internet or if an, a, um, a foundation model, if an AI can give me the answer, why do I need to work hard? And that's the, the typical question that will come out of a student. And we have to understand that to motivate them, we have to pay attention to their identity and belonging, to their agency and growth mindset, and to their purpose and passions. 
I see a couple different camps emerging in terms of how and where AI is is being used. Um, they're Sal Khan and uh, and Khan Academy is you know developing Khan Conmigo, and they're kind of the the leading advocates for AI as an intelligent tutor. Uh, I also I read uh, Ethan Mollick's column, the the professor at Wharton, who's um, inviting his learners to use uh, AI in in entrepreneurship. So that's AI as a creation engine. Um, which of those are you enthusiastic about or thoughts on it as a tutor or a creation engine? Um, both, quite honestly. So the, there's the design and there's the delivery. AI is going to be used for both. So whether you're a teacher, professor, student, it's going to help you design your outputs a lot better. You're going to have access to you know, a, a helper of sorts to help you create and I don't mean create in the you know, necessarily in an artistic sense. I really mean in a textual sense or in a conceptual sense. So we can design curricula, for instance. We can take a book, and uh, an open source book, like from OpenStax, and feed it into an AI system, which will be well-trained, like the one we're designing, to um, give you credible answers and design lesson plans for you based on real knowledge that has been curated rather than just knowledge that you find anywhere on the internet. So that's the design side. The deployment side is so-called intelligent tutoring systems. First of all, they should not be an or proposition. They should be an and proposition. The student still needs the social engagement with his or her peers and the teachers and so on. So it cannot be just in isolation of everything else. Second, um, these ITSs may be more um, effective with so-called vertical disciplines, disciplines like mathematics that are a lot more threaded and systematic than, say, literature or philosophy. And so the verticalization of the discipline may impact how far you can push an intelligent tutor, because in the case of you know, climbing a ladder step by step, it's a lot easier than having an open-ended conversation about the philosophical concept. So there's got to be some uh, analysis done there to see where they can help the most. And as always, uh, this is a helper to the teacher, not to the student only. Uh, the teacher has to be capable of uh, designing and digesting the capabilities of an AI but also not feel threatened by an ITS on the delivery side and know how to work with an ITS as a helper for that student. It's interesting um, that, that you, you mentioned these intelligent uh, tutoring systems. There, there's a, a couple of new micro schools that advertise no teachers. You just learn with an AI tutor. Uh, is, is that the future or... Is the future more uh, teachers empowered by uh, teaching assistants and tutoring systems? Well, um, that model of only technology works, in my opinion, only when you don't have solid teachers. You know, if you're a poor country and you have no teachers whatsoever, sure, that's better than nothing. It's a bit like learning off YouTube, but with a bit more guidance than just YouTube or, or some, you know, uh, online course. But really, <laughs> that would be the, the, let's say, the lowest form of usage of AI 
and uh, really would diminish the role of teachers in an unacceptable way where we need, we, we know from learning sciences, that uh, peer learning, social learning matter an enormous deal. And again, my comment about vertical disciplines apply as well. This may work again for math much better than for, you know, language. So I'm, I would be terribly skeptical about uh, a technology only model, whatever technology that is, including AI. Charles, we uh, we just issued a report called the Portrait Model that was it's a gallery of learning objectives of school systems around the country, um, and none of those included wisdom. But in Chapter Three, you argue that wisdom is really the enduring goal of education. It made me smile. It was a beautiful chapter. Why is wisdom more important than ever? Well, perhaps it's my age that's dictating this. Perhaps that's where, you know, I'm realizing this. Um, we're definitely not the first ones to be talking about wisdom for education by far. Uh, you know, you can go back to Confucius and Socrates, except that we are taking it away from merely a, um, how can I say, a popular perception into quantifying what it actually means. So there's been researchers like Sternberg and others who, who have done a lot of work on this topic and uh, have allowed us to look at what exactly is wisdom and how does this match with, to, with the competencies framework we have. And lo and behold, wisdom is really represented by most of these competencies. The one difficulty with wisdom is to make sure that it happens in a compressed time because you don't have 70, 80 years ahead of you as a student you want to be able to compress those 70, 80 years of experiences into 12. And so that's the, that's the challenge. Mind you, that's what education has always been. Education has always been taking the knowledge accumulated over 2,000 years and distilling it into 12 years of math or language or so on. We don't retrace the steps of all the mathematicians step by step by laborious step. We distill it. And so we have to do all of that more intelligently and more systematically with the competencies, et cetera, et cetera. Now, taking a step back, philosophically, all the problems we have on the planet are due to a lack of wisdom. You can trace them back to this uh, you know, uh, inability to think in a measured way, in an end curve, in a golden mean sort of way, where you pay attention to both sides and you try to deeply understand what's motivating uh, a group of people to act in a certain way, preferably present, prevent sorry, the explosion before it happens by being listening wisely and try to diffuse situations. Sometimes because we don't listen, situations grow out of control and then we are left fighting fires and that's very, very late to do so. Um, in... In chapter six, I think you you reconsider uh, your learning framework. Um, I think a lot of our listeners will know your framework includes uh, knowledge, skills, character, and and meta learning. Um, maybe you could give us a summary of how, how you how you think differently now about that outcome framework. Um, so the framework was published in 2015, and it had at its core 
the work we had done with the Partnership for 21st Century Skills, meaning the so-called four C's, four skills, you know, creativity, critical thinking, communication, collaboration. Then out of a review of 861 papers and frameworks from around, and more than 100 frameworks from around the world, we were able to concatenate the SEL portion, the social and emotional learning aspect, into character. And character was uh, mindfulness, curiosity, courage, ethics, leadership, resilience, ethics, and ethics and leadership. And then meta-learning was metacognition and growth mindset. As we have under uh, continued analyzing this in light of AI, we're able to uh, take it even further down, reduce it even further, distill it down to four skills, the same four. Character, we're able to move mindfulness into meta-emotion because very often people confuse mindfulness with mindfulness practice. We didn't mean uh, meditation. We meant meta-emotion. So that's clearer. It's under meta-learning. And we were able to distribute leadership as part of collaboration, but also part of a modern emphasis. You will have noted that in the book, we, what we have done is also, as we analyzed what AI can do about these competencies, we try to zero in on, the again, distilling the distillation itself. So, for instance, creativity. Everybody thinks that AI is not creative, but actually AI can be extremely creative like humans when it comes to imitation. A lot of our creativity is, you know, incremental. Um, probably no more than 5% is actually radical innovation. The other 95% is very incremental. And that's what AI does really well because it can look at patterns and predict the, the, the next uh, step. That's what AI does really well. And that's how most of uh, human creativity is. So yes, AI can create. However, if we're thinking about what's imaginative, what's uh, unusual, then that's what humans come up with every once in a while. But even the Mozarts of the world have also a lot of very bland outputs. And every once in a while, they hit on a gem. So we have to teach by, by emphasizing imagination as we're teaching creativity. So that's what we call a modern emphasis, teaching for imagination, teaching for leadership, teaching for this and that as a, a further refinement of these competencies. Charles, I, I think I, I took a screenshot of that modern emphasis and sent it immediately to my team. And it, it's really beautiful. I think it's a super important insight. I also just, I want to underscore that this chapter six, it goes through your competency framework. And, and as you said, it scores, is AI good at it today? Will it be good at it in five years? And, and does it complement um, human skills? I've, I've never seen anybody do that. It's really interesting. The, the other takeaway from that section for me was that it's those character dimensions of, of courage and ethics of metal learning that AI is not good at, not likely to get uh, good at. And that for me, I think signal uh, the importance of it, of, of those character traits being a, a modern emphasis. Do you, is that fair? That's correct. So these two dimensions, character and meta-learning, are the ones that are more, call them resistant to AI. Uh, take courage or, or uh, resilience. 
AI doesn't have the concept of courage because it doesn't have the concept of fear because it doesn't fear dying. In the first chapter, when we talk about AI's performance at go or as a fighter pilot, you will realize that it uses strategies that humans do not use because it can compute a probability of winning, which humans cannot do on the fly. It can compute that 60 moves ahead in the case of go. So because of fear of loss, we have different strategies that require courage. It is fearless. It's not fearless, as you would say for a human. It's fearless. It doesn't have fear. It doesn't know the concept of fear. Similarly, it is not resilient like a human. It is just infinitely patient. So it will read the same story to your five-year-old for the millionth time without getting annoyed, <laughs> whereas no human can do that. So it is very different in, in its um, behaviors regarding these character qualities. And then when it comes to meta-learning, it's just not self-reflective. It, it doesn't have that. Uh, an algorithm cannot reflect on itself. It's an impossibility. We still have that capability in humans when we train it, of course, through education. And that is one of the things that perdures. Now, I really want to make sure that we don't talk about AI and humans as a, um, as a competition, really. Because that's the first instinct. Where can we find a refuge? Where can we be different? But it's just not the right answer. You know, if they're going to be infinitely patient with our five-year-old, fine. Let's use that to read the same story for a five millionth time. But let's use let's go out with a five-year-old in a way that our AI cannot. You know, do activities that AI cannot, and by, have our binding, our attachment to our child that way, rather than just by reading the same story over and over again. It forces us to put the spotlight on how crude sometimes some of our own behavior is, whether it's in the tests we provide students or how we deal with each other. We are sometimes very basic, and AI is going to push us to realize, wait a second, I can do a lot better than this. Lastly, uh, there's also a section, uh, in addition to the ones you have mentioned, where we also look at the dangers of AI, um, and really, it really boils down to one word, over-reliance. Well, two words, over-reliance. That's the big concern, because if you start offloading your thinking, offloading uh, your courage, offloading all these things, that becomes a problem. And that's one of the traps that will fall easily in, because if you're only compensated or rewarded by writing an essay, fine, you'll use the cheapest way to get your essay done, whether it's paying a, a colleague student or uh, asking AI. But if you start asking the difficult questions about what is the right question to ask and how do you ascertain the answer, now that's different. And so again, the spotlight is on how we've been asking ourselves to perform. And that's a very therapeutic thing, I think, that's going to happen. All right, Charles, my absolute favorite part of your book is chapter seven, where you, you talked about the drivers. Uh, this includes identity, agency, and purpose. That chapter is by far the, the best, most thorough uh, description of those drivers. And it's the only discussion I've ever seen of the, uh, the implications of AI uh, on those drivers. So what are, what are those drivers, identity, 
um, agency and purpose? Are, are they dispositions? Certainly. Well, so in a world where you have capabilities, uh, technical capabilities out there helping you, you have to think of your motivation to perform. Right. If something comes to you easily and how you know, and you want to o- avoid over reliance, you have to pay all the more attention to motivation. Well, what are the components that get into motivation? Well, they are related to who you are and where you belong, your sense, your stability, which is, by the way, all the more needed in an age of technology, a serious sense of self and and space and safety. Then you have the question of, well, can I act? in this world, that's your sense of agency, and how do I view my optimism about getting better growth mindset, which Carol Dweck talked about. And then, of course, there's the issue of purpose. You know, we call it sometimes passion projects and so on and so forth. And well, it's if I have all this capability at my fingertips, what exactly am I going to do with it? That's going to help not just me, but the planet and humanity. And so... Paying attention to this motivation of students allows the personalization we've been talking about for a long time to become much more uh, realistic and grounded. Rather than thinking of personalization in terms very coarsely of, well, do they want to do STEM or not, or humanities, you know, that's way too coarse. What we have to think about is within all of these disciplines, how can we personalize what they pay attention to? at several levels of granularity. And therefore, how do we appeal to their motivation so it's a pull rather than a push? There will always be, of course, uh, 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 extrinsic motivation, but we really need to rebalance things and have a lot more intrinsic motivations. So it's not just about grades. It's about grades that I'm doing really well with because my project is jazzing me because I'm designing a flying uh, uh, drone that's going to allow to detect mines or it's going to help crops or whatever. That's what jazzes you and allows you to really want to learn about the physics of flying and the, the engineering of building a drone, et cetera, et cetera. Uh- Charles, are th- these aren't quite competencies. Should should agency, identity, and purpose, should they show up on a portrait of a graduate? Or how should schools express aspirations around these drivers? Well, they shouldn't be, they're not meant to be a, a figure of merit of some sort. They need to be embedded in how the student is learning. So you cannot say, well, there's a grade for your identity or a grade for your purpose. You know, it, it's, uh, it's meaningless. And that's why, uh, t- for your uh, previous question, these should not be measured, quote-unquote. Uh, however, they should be explicitly embedded in an education. And there's Chapter 8, I think, where we show how you can design curriculum and courseware to do that very explicitly, very smoothly. It's not yet another layer to add. All these things are embedded in the pedagogy. So you give students choices and uh, and you let them express their choice through various purposes. I love that, Charles. It, it reminds me of our friends at uh, Cajon Valley USD in, in San Diego. They have this mission of happy kids and healthy relationships on a path to gainful employment. So they, they've embedded this idea of entity um, and, and purpose into their mission 
And after every one of the immersive experiences their kids go through, they're invited to reflect on their strengths, interests, and values. And so the students are better able in Cajon Valley than any place I've seen to be be able to describe their sense of self while they're building a sense of purpose. Um, and so it, it doesn't show up on a dashboard or a report card, but yet it is fully embedded and their students are really articulate around these ideas. Is, is that what you have in mind? Exactly, exactly. It will show in their results, in their grades, in their transcripts, in their projects, uh, in their energy, it will show up that way. And uh, you also you also mentioned that they have to reflect, meaning that's the metacognitive aspect, the meta-emotional aspect that they're being trained to observe and to act on. So all of that uh, is taking place. The one thing I would uh, just hesitate about is to not make it all about jobs. Jobs are important, but if you think of the Ikigai model, it's do what you love, yes, do what you can be paid for, that's the jobs part, do what's good for you and do what's good for uh, humanity. So not one out of four, all four out of four need to be part of that conversation. I love that. Um, Charles, another example uh, across the New Tech Network, there's about 200 project-based schools around the country, and they assess agency, communication, collaboration, critical thinking on every project that they uh, that students engage in. And they have a beautiful agency rubric that goes into a lot of detail, about 12 different elements around personal effectiveness and uh, goal setting and um, and and taking initiative. And so they've really broken it down into the many of the composite uh, competencies that. Uh, that you talk about. And so that sound, sound productive to you? It does sound productive uh, from a research perspective. Uh, the last thing I would want to see happen this early is that it gets turned into some form of numerical value to be proposed as part of your transcript to for university re- requirements. We, don't, we do want it to be as uh, practically paid attention to as possible. And this helps the teachers pay attention to it all the better, again, as long as it's uh, a formative mindset and a research mindset. Over time, there's no doubt that leaders like them that are developing deep understanding of one of these facets will be able to synthesize that research from them and others and see what works, what doesn't. The same way we've done for the competencies. Uh, The difference, though, is that whereas for the competencies, there's a pathway for rubrics and for eventual formative measurements, there's there's probably not going to be a pathway for measurements in the case of identity, agency, purpose. You cannot say Charles' identity is better than Tom's identity. That just doesn't make any any sense, right? However, you want to make sure that each one of us develop themselves to their maximum potential. So it's the competition is not against each other; it's one with its one with one's own capabilities. I love that. We've been talking to Charles Fidel. He's the founder of the Center for Curriculum Redesign and author of a great new book called Education for the Age of AI. Uh, Charles, as we wrap up, what, what what advice would you offer to the ed leaders that are listening? So, given your the, the big takeaways from your book, what what should they what should they do next? 
well, they should understand that AI is going to have an impact on the design side and the delivery side, right? So design side being designing curricula and lesson plans and the delivery side, meaning how that's uh, uh, rolled out to students in, uh, in classrooms, uh, be they with an ITS uh, assisted by a teacher or, or whatever. So it has implications for teachers, it has implications for administrators, it has implications for parents. So we're all wondering as parents, now what do I do? Um, I don't see why parents shouldn't be, uh, particularly those on school boards, shouldn't be very well aware of the capabilities and the implications of AI. And lastly, policymakers, you know, the uh, departments of education in all the states, all various countries, need to pay attention to their role into modifying the standards. Because, you know, why are we still teaching so many obsolete elements and not leaving space for more modern subjects and topics. So there's need, there needs to be courage to push on that. And that means addressing university entrance requirements. That is worth another conversation, but that's really eventually the Gordian knot of the problem. Another big takeaway is um, get this book and read it now. Make it part of your book club. Um, Charles, wh where can people learn more and get the book? Well, certainly on the Center for Curriculum Redesign's website, which is simply curriculumredesign.org, or on Amazon if they want to go straight uh, to, to purchase. Charles, we may, we may have to do another session on, on the design and deployment uh, and go into that advice in a little more detail. Are you willing to do that? Certainly. Happy to do so. All right. It's been terrific to reconnect. Um, we super appreciate the work you and the center are doing this book is really great and uh timely advice we hope everybody reads it and until next week keep learning keep leading and keep innovating for equity thanks for tuning in to the getting smart podcast today we want this podcast to be actionable insightful and a great way to learn about what's next in learning in order to stay on the cutting edge we need people in the field to tell us what they're hearing what they're wanting and what they're needing to learn more about Got a topic or a guest in mind? Send your recommendations to me, Mason at GettingSmart.com. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review in Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. Feel free to share the podcast on social media using the hashtag GSPodcasts. Thanks so much.